Hello and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Sasha Cuff, who's a somatic relational practitioner with Nectara. For 25 years, Sasha has worked therapeutically with people with all types of trauma, trying to understand the roots of suffering and disease. He recognized that some people got better, but many of them had no improvement at all, which ultimately led him on a path to explore and study other alternative healing modalities. So in this episode, we cover Sasha's role at Nectara as a guide, and we dive into the masterclass that he created titled The Physiology of Trauma. He provides a great overview of what students of the course can expect to learn and use in their practice. We also discuss Sasha's short journey in academia, studying psychology, and why he left to learn about alternative modes of therapy and healing, including traditional Chinese medicine, muscle testing, shamanism, and psychedelic therapy, among many others. Additionally, Sasha explains how being a loving father of three boys taught him more about therapy and healing than any psychology course he ever took. Sasha also offers advice for those interested in pursuing a similar path as his and exploring different modes of healing to find what lights you up. And finally, we wrap up the discussion with a reflection on the future of the psychedelic field and Sasha's interest in psychedelic centers to support people in all stages of the psychedelic journey. So be sure to check out the show notes for ways to connect with Sasha, as well as some relevant links that we have from our discussion. And this episode's a little special. We have a special link to Sasha's masterclass. And if you click on that link and sign up for the course, it helps support Nectara, Sasha, as well as the psychedelic grad community. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all of our members and allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. So thank you to our listeners for joining me in this enlightening conversation with Sasha, and I hope that you find it just as interesting and exciting as I do. Welcome, Sasha, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So to get us started, Sasha, let's talk a little bit about your current position as a guide at Nectara. And if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about what Nectara is. Yeah, I'd love to. So Nectara is an online uh, platform um, where people can connect to talk about Psychedelic therapy is the main thing, but psychedelics in general, um, they have an integration circle on there every month. So, you know, maybe you're feeling a little messed up after a psychedelic journey and looking for some support. It's an it's a ecosystem uh, that you can plug into to connect with other people on the path. And, um, you know, there's my master class is on there and uh, podcasts like this will be on there. So it's, it's a place to connect and it's a bit like Facebook, the online uh, platform um, right now, there's only about 40 people there, but they are going to open it up again for, for new people. So we're growing it slowly so that it stays kind of intimate. Um, so people that are really, you know, keen and, and into this work can find um like-minded people and support and information. That's a great description. Thanks for sharing that with us. So you are a guide at Nectara, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. Started out as just in my own practice. Um, and then, you know, Nectar is very new. It's just emergent. And, uh, you know, they asked if I could be part of their team. So there's about seven or eight other guides on there right now. And, um, you know, part of my role on there is teaching. Uh, you know, I'm teaching other guides tools and techniques to help them, you know, improve their ability to hold space for psychedelic journeys. But I have my own practice outside of Nectara as well. And, you know, people come and I mainly work with a medicine called 3MMC, which is it, it's a empathogen, very similar to MDMA. And uh, my main focus these days is on trauma resolution, because I've found that that's at the root of most of what we call mental health and, and addiction. Uh, most mental health disorders are actually sort of just fancy names that they've put on collections of unprocessed trauma symptoms. So I was working for about 25 years in the healing arts and trying, you know, trying everything. I did some traditional counseling um, education and university and I, you know, I got into rest in shamanism and, you know, I tried Chinese medicine, lots of different things trying to find, you know, what actually works and what's, what's wrong with people. <laughs> and uh, what I found uh, eventually after about 15 years of seeking uh, was it's this unprocessed trauma and unprocessed emotional charge that tends to lead to all these addictions and mental health disorders. Awesome. That's really fascinating and such important work. I can't wait to dive in a little bit later and learn more about your journey, all those trial and error things, trying to figure out what exactly works. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the masterclass that you created and that is offered by Nectara that is titled The Physiology of Trauma. So can you tell us a little bit more about this masterclass and what it offers? Absolutely. So it's the culmination of 25 years of um, being in the healing arts. And, you know, one thing I found sitting with people, you know, I was using vibrational medicines and homeopathy and muscle testing and different things. And, and some people were getting better and, and some people weren't, um, or it was very, very slow. And, you know, once I started um, about 10 years ago, I, I did a course with a fabulous teacher uh, named Mariah Moser, and she offers a course called Opening to Grace, where she teaches trauma resolution skills. Um, so once I took her course and I started applying that into my practice, I noticed, wow, people are actually getting better and, and their lives are transforming and they've got more energy and they're less depressed and they're less anxious. And um, so I started applying what I had learned there you know, into my practice. Uh, but there was quite a few things that still people were stuck and and I just it was sort of trial and error like I'll try this and I'll try that and and, and I, I also I'm very intuitive that's a big part of my practice is so I, intuitively I would get these sort of hits and then I would just try it out and and sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't and and so over the last 15 years I've really um developed I've written quite a few papers on uh the physiology of trauma <clears throat> probably the most uh, important one, it's called the eight types of shame. And I go, of course, in depth into it in the masterclass. 
Um, I also recognize that there's there's many different types of trauma. I, I wrote another paper, you know, it's now called the 20 types of trauma, because most people think of just, you know, their shock trauma, like accidents and going to war and bombs going off. But there's all these other different types of trauma that um, aren't talked about that much, you know, and some of them are relational. You know, we're such uh, we're so wired for relationship and in the master class, of course, I go way more into depth into all of the different types. And uh, but the three main ones are, you know, the shock traumas, uh, what we call developmental trauma. And I go into four different types of developmental trauma. But the main type of developmental trauma is basically not being held enough as an infant and, and toddler, because humans as mammals were born with a very underdeveloped nervous system. You know, other mammals like horses and, you know, they can walk within a day or two of being born. Whereas for us, it takes a year to get to that stage. You know, in order to get this big of a head through a through an upright pelvis, uh, you know, we're born with a very underdeveloped nervous system. And to compensate for that, what nature does is uh, the parents or the, the caregiver's nervous system is used to teach the infant nervous system, how to regulate. So the baby cries, dysregulated, crying, you pick up the baby, you soothe the baby. And what's happening in that is the baby's nervous system is in training to the adult or to the caregiver's nervous system. And there's actually this biological transmission going on where the caregiver's nervous system is teaching that infant nervous system, how to regulate. So, uh, you know, we, we went through in the seventies, like the cry it out method and, you know, these PhD guys that really have caused a lot of harm. Um, you know, half of my practice is trying to undo the, the cry it out method because, you know, if you've ever heard a, a baby crying, you know, they start out ah, squawking and then they get a bit louder. And if no one's coming, they, they, it's like, ah, and then they'll stop and, you know, but of course they haven't self-soothed. They've actually, their nervous system's gone into a, a, a play dead response. So, you know, too much hyper nervous fear, um, you know, anxiety, terror, and then boom, you know, just like the electrical system in your house, right? If you plug too much, you know, drawing too much energy, it'll blow the fuse to protect the circuitry same in your in your nervous system in your body if if you get to like a heightened state of fear or terror you know it'll blow the fuse and we call that you know in trauma resolution work it's all about the the survival system of the body which is fight flight or freeze or or play dead so it's it's a shutdown it's a neural state where the parasympathetic part of your nervous system kicks in and and shuts down um, so that you don't, you know, freak out. So with a lot of infants, or maybe even if the uh, parent say does pick up the child, but the the adults nervous, they're dysregulated. So this is where one of the types of trauma, like we call it intergenerational trauma, where, you know, say your grandparents went to war, they got traumatized, they come back with PTSD, then they have kids, and the they're holding the baby, but the baby's attuning to a nervous system that's dysregulated. So it doesn't actually learn how to self-regulate. So we have all these people going around with this, we call it developmental trauma, and it's actually an epidemic and it's at the root of 
most uh, depression and anxiety. And uh, so in the, in the work, what we're doing as therapists is we're actually people start going into those early imprints and, and, you know, it's all loaded with fear and shame. And, and then as, as the therapist, once we've developed safe touch, I actually go and I hold people and I, and, and I help them regulate and I use my nervous system. And we might do that. Well, in a psychedelic session, they're usually about seven hours long. We might do that 20 times where they go into a fear state and then we co-regulate, we call it. And each time we do that, it not only regulates the, the trauma that was stuck in there, but it also strengthens their nervous system so that they can learn how to, to self-regulate. So in the masterclass, I talk way more about uh, developmental trauma. The other main type of trauma is what we call attachment trauma. So, you know, when you're born and you look at your parents, you, we, you know, we call it bonding. And there's actually a biological uh, thing that goes on there where we're wiring. Um, these are my parents and they're actually wiring to you too, right? So that, you know, when you're screaming for the 10th night in a row, they don't just throw you out to the wolves or whatever. They There's this sort of we're, we're biologically wired to protect our our attachment figures or our, our, our family, you know, our community. So there's that bonding that happens at birth, but those attachment wirings actually happen all the way along until you're seven. And depending on how connected you were with your parents and how nurturing and loving and 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 how much um, holding you got. Uh, those attachment wirings may not have wired up properly. Um, and a lot of what I talk about in the masterclass is this whole new understanding of um, the field of psychology. You know, I, I like to say, you know, we're not stuck in our psychology, we're stuck in our biology. And the psychology is the symptoms of it. So the whole field of psychology is basically symptom management, you know, and so there's nothing wrong with it. Great. We have some tools and techniques to manage the symptoms of trauma, uh, but of course it doesn't necessarily resolve it. So we we're all constantly managing it. But when you actually get down, like what's the root of our mental health and addiction stuff, and you start saying, oh, it's all these different types of trauma and the, the, the challenging thing about trauma is that if it's unresolved, it's like a loop stuck in time. So uh, it could have been from when you were three. If it's unresolved, it's still there and it can still get triggered. And you, you see that in your relationships, you know, all of a sudden someone's like having a little temper tantrum or whatever. And they're like a three-year-old that, that needs a hug or whatever. <laughs> you know? um, so I, I talk a lot about attachment trauma in there and relational healing because relational healing it, it's a very, um, it's not much talked about in the field. And it's actually, I would say it's about a third of all of our, our wounding and our trauma is relational. So one thing I actually teach a uh, therapist training uh, where I have a whole section, you know, on relational healing and how to do that. So if your attachment isn't good with your parents, um, it'll show up in your adult relationships with these certain attachment styles, right? Some people have anxious attachment, right? Where they're, they're kind of preoccupied, like, oh, is my, you know, partner going to leave? You know, they're always paranoid about, and they always need, you know, soothing. And that's partly to do with their nervous system. Um, not, they didn't get enough of those uh, loving inputs as children, and they're still needing it. So they're kind of like, I need you to regulate me. 
and I need you to uh, soothe me. And if you know this, then it's like, oh, okay, well, my partner has anxious attachment. They need a lot of regulating and co-regulating. And eventually over time, they get less and less anxious and become more and more secure. You know, I guess the third big type of trauma is this shock trauma, which is like accidents and those types of things. And, and that's where somatic therapy is really helpful. Um, and with all the trauma resolution, you know, this is where the psychedelics are. It's kind of like this match made in heaven. And I talk about this in the masterclass too, the, um, especially in pathogens work really well with the somatic therapy, trauma resolution work, uh, because they, inhibit shame and they make the positive feelings more salient um, and the the negative feelings less salient so uh you know like if someone comes to you and they've had a lot of trauma and they've got ptsd and their life is a mess and their nervous system's a mess and then you're like okay let's go into your childhood trauma together and they're already feeling terrible it's really hard to go start digging into their deeper pain. But if you give them an empathogen like MDMA or 3MMC, all of a sudden I feel, I feel pretty good. I could go in, you know, like, let's go, let's do it. <laughs> so it gives people a, a temporary, um, well, you get a huge hit of serotonin. So you actually feel pretty good. And then, you know, looking at your deep, dark pain, doesn't seem like this overwhelming, horrible, terrible thing. It's, you know, you're more bolstered to be able to, uh, to do that work. Uh, what else is in the masterclass? I talk a bit in there about uh, archetypal distortion, which is something I've come up with over the years. The most distorted archetype is the Holy Father. And, you know, most of the major religions around the world kind of portray him as this sort of sadistic, judgmental punisher. And in reality, um, you know, especially if you you look at the Jesus story, for example, which is very similar to the Mohammed story, and there's this point where you sort of get this impression that the Holy Father wanted Jesus to be tortured to death to to save everybody, right? But if you look at that from like a like a father's, I have three boys myself the oldest is now 22 um i would never ask my son to sacrifice be tortured to death even if it did help people there's better ways right um and so the real holy father is is presence you know is patience is you know the holy father is timeless it's it's not this distort and a lot of people if you don't question this archetype because it's so primary um, it can actually affect the way you parent, the way you perceive, you know, yourself. And the other thing I talk about in the masterclass, I, I talk a fair bit about men's work and uh, how important that is. Because, uh, you know, for men particularly, we tend to do better if we have a uh, like a role model that we can look up to. And so, you know, there's the distorted Holy Father, which we want to like change that role model into what the healthy father is. And so basically in the men's groups that I've been in, we've been exploring together, what is a healthy man? What is a healthy father? Because like the the sort of cultural role models out there are like sports stars and greedy politicians and um, movie stars. And, you know, if you look at guys like Michael Jackson or whatever, you know, 
they're rich, everyone loves them, they're famous, totally neurotic mess. You know, there's not that many um, healthy male role models out there. So, you know, as a group, we've sort of been crowdsourcing, well, what, what does it actually look like, you know, uh, because we're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> and it's been fascinating uncovering that together with my bros, you know, the healthy masculine is super generous, kind, loving, you know, gentle, funny, you know, it's, it's these qualities. The other thing I've discovered is that those qualities are, are already inside of us. Like our true nature is kind, is loving, is gentle, is uh, forgiving, you know, is generous. And as you do the, like, this is where psychedelics can be fabulous because they can give you a, a, a temporary glimpse into your deeper nature uh, because they turn off the default mode network, which is our, well, it's the neural correlate of the ego. It's our ruminative sense of self. You know, it's the part that we're we're always talking to. Oh, I wonder if I should go and go shopping now, or maybe I'll do it later. And oh, I'm a good person, or I'm a bad person, or I'm a, you know, <clears throat> whatever it is. I'm a man. I'm forty. I'm fifty. I'm blah blah blah. It's the storyteller, and most of us are are trapped in that default mode network all the time. And we're just ruminating on what we know. And, and the, the default mode network, it, it has a hard time taking in new information. Actually, it, it likes to just kind of think more about what it knows. Um, and if it gets a bit uncomfortable with things that, that maybe contradict what it thinks it knows. And, and this is where the beauty of psychedelics come in because they actually turn that down and they've done neural scans where they, they see that the default mode network can turn right off. And that's where you can have these um, transpersonal experiences where it feels like your ego disappears. You know, they call it ego death, that made up sense of self that we make up in our brain, all the stories, uh, you know, shuts down. All of a sudden we, it feels like you're dying, right? Because your sense of self disappears, um, which for some people is terrifying. For me, I love it because it it's like, oh God, that, that guy shut up for a minute. So I could see what, what else is there. And you can have these, you know, oneness type experiences where you, you see that you're not separate from, from everything. And, and you start to glimpse into uh, your deeper nature. And you, and the good news is we're actually really good at the core. We're, we're these loving, like our, our essence self. It's all those qualities that we try to generate uh, love and kindness and compassion and, um, we actually already are those things. And so the process of the spiritual path and the healing path is very similar. It's actually a process of seeing what we're not, you know, it's actually a, a deconstructive process, you know, oh, I, I'm a bad guy. And most of those sort of negative thought patterns about ourselves are coming from unprocessed trauma. So there's, there's like anxiety, this loop that's stuck in time, but you know, it's really uncomfortable to, to stay with that feeling. So we go into thoughts, oh, it must be because I'm I'm a loser and I don't have enough money and I'm not good looking enough and da 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 da. And you know, so once you start, you know, doing psychedelics and you start doing trauma resolution, you start seeing, oh, it's just it, that's being generated from this discomfort in my body. And you the the medicines um help you go into that discomfort and 
And the somatic therapy, especially if, you know, if someone like me is with you and it's like, okay, how are you feeling? Oh, it's really tight. And okay, what happens if you stay with that? Oh, I'm starting to feel scared. And then I would come and, you know, hold the person, be like, it's okay, we're, we got this. And I'm using my nervous system and we're both like, you know, and it might even go into like, oh my God, it's really scary. And, and you know, and I'm using my nervous system to, to teach, to calm them, to regulate them. And then that anxiety starts to disappear and we stop making all these stories. Of course, I go into all that. So that's the essence of the masterclass. Those are kind of the main things. I talk about a few other things, but um, the, it, mainly it's trauma resolution and psychedelics and how those things work together. That was an incredibly thorough description. <laughs> <laughs> But it was great. It was, it was really great. Um, it's, it's very clear when you paint the image of trauma is the root, you know, but you also paint the image of how the trauma work along with using the tool of psychedelics, like you said, disassembles that so you can get down to the trauma, you can get down to the core and you can work through it and come out on the other side better. So that was great. Very well said and very thorough. You actually answered all the questions that I had written down. So that was great. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate that. I think it's a really great glimpse into what they can expect if they decide to take the masterclass and, and what they can get out of that. There was one more thing I wanted to talk about because you bring up the practice of like somatic touch in your work. And I know that in the psychedelic field, there's a lot of discussion going on about ethics around that. And I think that's something that's really important to touch on because for those of our listeners that are interested in integrating somatic touch into their healing processes and into their work, like this is something that they have to think through. So what, what advice can you give or what ethics are useful for you to think about when you do your work and when you integrate somatic touch into it? Thank you. That is like the perfect question because um, it's the first thing I teach uh, in my training is navigating safe touch. Um, and, you know, in the, in the sort of psychology stuff that I took and the, you know, beginning to, to go down the road of becoming a, a counselor or a therapist, they just say no touch <laughs> uh, because, you know, obviously they don't want therapists fondling their clients and clients fondling their therapists or, you know, so just to make it safer, they just take it right out. Um, which I can understand it does kind of make it easier and safer on that ethics side of things, but it also eliminates about 50% of the potential healing because as I was explaining earlier, uh, most people have various degrees of developmental trauma and the the resolution of the developmental trauma is to actually be held. And some people, you know, I've worked with clients who, you know, they've had so many boundary violations since they were a little child, they've been sexually abused or whatever. So touch is, is, can be terrifying, especially from a man, you know? Um, so, you know, with most people, I can navigate safe touch in about half an hour or so, or it might take a couple sessions with some people. It can take up to, you know, two years before we can touch the tips of our fingers together um, just because they've been so violated and they have so much mistrust. And, uh, you know, so um, you can't just like, okay, I, this person really needs touch. And, you know, I think it would really help them, um, you know, if they're really traumatized and it's, you really have to navigate that slowly and, 
gradually, and it actually does have to feel safe. And it's an ongoing negotiation. It's kind of like a, um, consent with sexuality, right? Just because you said yes five minutes ago doesn't mean it's still a yes, right? It, it's uh, it's very similar to that. And um, the psychedelic sessions, especially because they're like seven hours long, and you know, if you haven't navigated safe touch, um, it can be quite intimate. Uh, even though, you know, I'm coming in as like the loving father is mainly what one thing I realized about, the further I got into um, therapy work is it actually has way more to do with parenting than it does to do with psychology. Psychology is the symptoms of it. But, but, you know, I had three kids and that actually taught me more about therapy than I ever learned in school. Uh, so one thing that helps with um this sort of quandary that we're in around like, okay, how do we uh, keep it safe, keep the touch safe? And when, well, when I teach therapists, uh, we use this co-therapy model, which the MAP study uses in their MDMA protocols. So there's two therapists and often it's a male and a female therapist. It doesn't have to be, but there's two therapists. So that creates a, a much bigger um, level of safety right? Because you're not going to fondle the client if there's another therapist sitting there, right? So the client automatically feels safer. Uh, so that's one sort of remedy to create more safety around touch. And uh, there's some debate in the whole field with guides. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum of people that are holding space, right? There's guys like me who've been therapists for 20 years. And then there's people that like, oh, you know, they go to Aikitos and they for a month in Peru and then they come back and now they're pouring ayahuasca right and and they have no background and and you know they haven't done much of their own work and you know to me the most important thing as a therapist is that you're always doing your own work like that's the most important thing it boggles my mind that people can become psychiatrists and psychologists without doing their own work like it should be the prerequisite is are you doing your own work you know the degrees that you letters that you have after your name um, mean nothing. If you haven't done your own, you know, like, you know, the theory of it, but how are you going to help someone resolve something that's still unresolved in you? You know what I mean? The education system around therapists needs to be totally revamped uh, because it's not churning out therapists with, with tools that work very well. And it's not stressing the, the, the importance of, doing one's own work. It's, it's the most important. When therapists come to me, I want to be a psychedelic therapist. I'm like, are you doing your own work? Um, you know, and well, I'm, I've got a, a bachelor's degree in psychology or whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, that's sort of somewhat irrelevant. Are you doing your deep work? Are you doing medicine work? Are you doing ceremonies? Are you doing, are you resolving your trauma? That's the number one uh, quality that I'm looking for. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say about touch has to do with um, ayahuasca circles. So, and again, there's been ayahuasca circles where, you know, shamans are fondling the people, high people. And which to me is like the most horrifying thing. Cause well, in my practice, one thing I found is I would say about 90% of women have some form of sexual violation. Uh, you know, it, it's rampant 
um, from all the way, you know, sexual assault or childhood sexual abuse, it's, it's fairly rampant out there. So, you know, a lot of people are coming to these ayahuasca circles in different places to heal that stuff. So the worst thing you can do is to repeat offend while they're in a vulnerable state, you know? Um, so really important to, um, make sure that your ayahuasca circles are safe because psychedelics make you more impressionable. So whatever happens to you when you're on the psychedelic has a deeper effect. That's why people can have like bad trips. You know, if you have a bad trip, it's worse than if you had just been straight and those bad things happened, you know, likewise, it, you're more neuroplastic. So if good things happen while you're in the, the, that more malleable state, they tend to go in deeper and have more lasting effect, you know? So, so we really want to be careful. But one thing I found about ayahuasca circles is uh, there's a dogma in the um, Shipibo tradition, which are the, you know, the tribe in the Amazon that, you know, is teaching most of the shamans that then come back and start doing circles in North America. They have a, a dogma around no touch because um, they think that you're the bad spirits are going to come out of the person into, into the shaman or whatever. And to me, that takes away about 50% of the potential healing of an ayahuasca circle, because what I started to notice when I was doing it, or, you know, as a participant was people would regress into these infant states and ch early childhood states, and they'd be alone in the, all this developmental trauma would come up and they'd be alone in the dark and no one would come and it would actually repeat the trauma. So I, I have teamed up with a shaman and we do a, or a ceremonialist, she calls herself, and we do a, um, two five-day ayahuasca retreats a year, one in spring and one in fall. And there's two ceremonies in the five days. And, and we established safe touch in the beginning, but before the first ceremony. And we only have 15 participants and we have um, seven angels. So we have a, uh, a high ratio of helpers um, and it's beautiful. People volunteer and they come and they, they, you know, they put a lot of work in so that when people take the ayahuasca and their developmental and attachment trauma comes up and they're alone, scared in the dark, we actually tell, you know, call out for help. And we tell people like, just, just call out for help. Don't, don't people sit there for hours. Should I call out for, I don't know if I should, you know, and we're so trained to like, do everything ourselves and it actually doesn't help us at all and anyways part of the whole teaching is to like ask for help and then they do and someone comes with a regulated nervous system and you know he holds your hand or or it gives you a hug and and you co-regulate and it's this fabulous opportunity to resolve all that all that developmental trauma and to start to resolve your attachment traumas and um so i'm a big advocate for bringing safe touch into the into the psychedelic space there's a certain level of integrity that you need before you start becoming a psychedelic therapist before you start working with people especially if you're a man and you haven't dealt with your uh you know you're still being overpowered by your sexual urges you should not be doing therapy with people you need to work on that and keep working on that you know until it's at a level where you would never act out on it because you, the last thing you want to do is re-traumatize someone when they're in a, in a vulnerable state like that. That was a really great answer. I appreciate you uh, working through all of that. I think there's a lot of considerations in there for 
anyone who would be interested in following a path, um, how to negotiate ethics around safe touch. What does that look like? What do you need to consider? Um, and how do you go about kind of working through that? So I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Okay, before we move on, is there anything else that you want to add about Nectara or your role there or the masterclass or anything that we didn't cover in that realm? Uh, I think we covered it pretty good there. Yeah, there's there's nothing I can think of right now. Um, of course, people could email Nectar if they have more questions about it or go to their website and, and you know, get more informed about how it looks and, and what's involved there. Yeah, perfect. And I'll be sure to include that Nectara website in the show notes too. Okay, so we'll move forward and talk more specifically about your journey uh, how you were interested in psychedelics and the work that you do and ultimately how you found yourself at Nectara. So um, kind of rewinding the clock a little bit, you mentioned that you started what would be considered maybe a traditional or formal degree education. of higher education, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? What did you study? Where did you study? Why did you choose to do that? And then why did you choose to change paths and try something different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I didn't go very far down that path. I just did the first, you know, semester at sort of a technical institute. And, and uh, I was, you know, I wanted to I guess I learn more about, uh, by doing things rather than talking about the theory of things. And, you know, looking back at it now, I, I and in the trainings that I teach, there's about 10% theory and there's about 90% practice, you know, and we're practicing with real things like, okay, going, let's talk about your relationship with your mother or whatever, right? Or your father. And that'll instantly, there's lots of material, <laughs> you know, to work with. Um, and I found in the in the sort of university academic setting, it, it was like 95% theory, 5% practice. And to me, it should be the other way around. It, it, it didn't make any sense to me studying, you know, like, it's a little bit useful to know the, the history of psychology and who the major players and what their theories were. But, you know, most of that stuff's outdated and we've actually come to new understandings. You know, of course, we've built on those past things, but I was really good at school. Like it wasn't that I, I didn't like, I, I, I could retain information, I, but it didn't feel, and I was trying to apply the, what I was learning to myself. And, it, you know, I was sort of just, it was so mental. That was the other thing. It was, it was very, uh, very mental. And, and it was mostly about telling a better story or reframing it or understanding it, which, which has some use. I'm not saying it's completely um, devoid of usefulness, uh, but it, and the, the teachers didn't seem very enlightened and, you know, it didn't seem like uh, that transformative, you know? Um, so I started to research other, other cultures and other medicine paths. And, um, you know, I studied Ayurveda and, and interestingly, uh, my son was born around that time, first son, and he, uh, we had a home birth and it was, it went on for days and, um, he came out with a very, like, you know, his whole head was sort of like a rugby ball and, um, and he screamed um, for the first two years of his life 
you know, and we went to doctors and naturopaths and energy. Like we were so desperate. Like the only thing that worked was going up and down the stairs. So we would take turns at night going up and down the stairs with the baby. And, and, you know, after about a year and a half, you know, I've never been so exhausted and like it, I feel like I'm still recovering from it. you know, where you're vomiting from exhaustion, you know, it was just, uh, it, was, it was horrible. Uh, you know, and we tried every diet and maybe it's, he's allergic to everything. So, you know, we ate nothing but brown rice and kale for the breast milk. And, you know, we tried and, and we went to the doctor and we said, Oh, what is this? And Oh, well it's colic, you know? And okay, well, what's colic? Oh, good. There's a, what's colic. Oh, it, it just means fussy baby. And well, what causes it? Oh, well, we don't actually know what causes it. Uh, but you know, try gripe water, which is basically alcohol, <laughs> um, give them alcohol, uh, which didn't work. And, and after about, um, you know, desperation of about two years, I, at the time I was starting to learn, uh, muscle testing, which is a way of using your body as a biofeedback mechanism. So you can, you know, you can, um, hold your arm out and ask a question and then you press. And if you get a strong muscle, it's yes, you know, weak muscle, it's a no. And, uh, you can hold different foods, you know, hold, am I sensitive to oranges? And if it goes weak, you know, whatever. Um, so I was starting to test people's allergies and different food sensitivities and stuff like that. And which, um, supplements would be good and all that kind of thing. And I had this idea like, oh, maybe I could just connect to my son, Kieran, and I could muscle test a list of possibilities. And so I wrote down every healing modality and herb and supplement and that I could think of and tested the whole list. And he, he only tested for one thing and it was cranial sacral therapy. And there happened to be a woman in Nelson that did cranial sacral uh, for kids. And we took him and one session, he stopped crying. It was done. It was um, resolved. And she's like, oh, it was birth trauma. And I was like, oh my God, how could we not have thought of that? You know, and I think colic is actually unresolved birth trauma, mostly. And there's probably other reasons like the digestion and whatever, but uh, I would say probably 90% of colic is actually birth trauma uh, that's stuck and looping. And the, and it's the, you know, this nervous system's having a hard time. Um, so not only he got better, but I was like, oh my God, the muscle testing worked, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I created a whole business out of testing a list of things. And, um, so, and in order to do that, I really needed to get quite a diverse understanding of all different healing modalities and possibilities and, um, you know, at least have a little bit. So I started, yeah, studying Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and, um, shamanism was actually came in at some point there. Uh, which was actually one of the more useful um, modalities that I found was, was the shamanic work, uh, you know, working with plant spirits and uh, doing um, soul retrievals and different things. You know, it was actually quite helpful. Um, and then, like I said earlier, eventually came across the trauma resolution work, the somatic therapy. And then that was like, the light went on, you like, Oh, this is where, this is the root. And, and, um, you know, no wonder some people get better and some people don't. And, and, uh, so then I spent, you know, the last, I guess about 15 years now, just applying the trauma resolution tools, but also really developing, really developing it, really, um, refining it into uh, making it more and more effective. 
over time and and seeing the patterns of of how trauma lives in the body and what are the mechanisms that um uh, you know of how it works and Gabor Mate put out a, a movie not recently called the the wisdom of trauma and he's a great emissary for like this is the root of mental health and addiction issues uh, but when I watched his panel of experts and, you know, after he has a whole panel and I was like, actually, these guys are missing a lot of stuff. Nobody talked about shame. Um, you know, there's Brené Brown, who's sort of the world expert on shame, but she only talks about one type. Shame is it's the mechanism that the biology uses to contain the trauma. Right. So there's got this loop stuck in time. You don't want to be feeling anxious all the time. So the body brings in this, I call it biological shame. And it actually like shame has this like numbing, muting, kind of subduing effect. Um, so the shame comes in and subdues the, the trauma. And so when you're working with trauma resolution, I started to develop these techniques for working with biological shame. And the most common one is, is what I call a shame freeze, where you, you kind of like, everything gets a bit tight, you get a bit spacey, everything, it's hard to feel your body, you get kind of numb. And you know, if you've ever got caught, like, you know, your parents catch you smoking for the first time or something, you know, you'll feel this like, Ugh, horrible shame freeze coming in, right? Um, so as you're working through it in the therapy, you know, when someone goes into that, what I do is if safe touch has been established is you rub the body really vigorously and it actually like breaks up that shame freeze. And then the trauma comes up from underneath. So most of the trauma, you're just working with like shame and fear. And one thing I realized is that shame and fear are not emotional states. Uh, they're actually neural states. So the emotional states are in the, the midbrain, the limbic system you know, like anger and sadness and all those things. But shame and fear are actually in the brain stem, which is the survival part of the brain. So those they're 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 not necessarily emotions. They're they're neural states. So the more trauma you have, usually the more biological shame you have trying to contain that trauma. And that's where most, well, I would say a lot like depression has many causes. But one of the main causes is you've just got all this biological shame in your uh, stuck in your system. And so you're kind of frozen and uh, and and your energy shuts down when you're you know, when you're in that state, it's trying to like actually um, numb your nervous system. So, you, you know, it's like, oh, I don't really care about anything. I don't have any energy. So once you realize like, oh, uh, depression is actually like. A biological shame neural state that's stuck in your system and you start working with that uh people start I, you know I, hundreds of people now come out of depression you know because it's a it's not uh and this is the revelation that i really want to like shout from the top of the mountain is it's a biological issue it's not a psychological issue it's not that you're unmotivated and that you don't you know um, that you're a loser and that you, you're not motivated enough. It's that your your biology is is in a stuck shutdown. You know, there's collapses. There's different depths of neural states. There's there's a play dead, which is even deeper. There's a um, the the deepest is when you go catatonic. And anyways, there's all these different um, depths of of these shame freezes. And and once you start resolving them, uh, 
the depression goes away, you know, in, in a lot of cases, not everyone. Awesome. It's definitely a very unique journey compared to what some of our other guests have had, which is again, that traditional system of higher education, you know, undergraduate, master's, PhD kind of formula. So I think this is a really important example that you said that there are alternative opportunities to find your way within the psychedelic space. And so I'm interested in hearing specifically, how did you go about learning different alternative therapies? Like, were there any schools that you went to, or did you read some of it on your own? How did that look for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a a mix of different approaches. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, Mariah Moser's class, Opening to Grace, uh, that's probably the best course I ever did. And she, you know, it was like three or four days, once a month for... um, I think it was at that point, it was like 10 months. Uh, so I, you know, it was a bit of a school training thing that went on for a couple of years. Well, there was a second part to it in the second year. So there was that. And then I took zillions of weekend workshops and, um, you know, and I would just seek out people in my area as well, you know, like, oh, there's, there's a guy that's practicing shamanism that, you know, offer sessions in Nelson and, so I would go and get a session. And if I liked the guy, I'd be like, hey, can you teach me your, can I apprentice with you? And and this is something also that's been a little bit lost by that, you know, it used to be much more common. We would have a, a apprentice style learning. You know, if you wanted to be a blacksmith, you'd go hang out with the blacksmiths and they'd teach you how to do it by doing it. <laughs> this is the, the education system. It's like, the theory of doing it, it, you know, where I find doing it is actually much, you actually embody the teachings rather than just being a mental construct. Um, So I would, you know, for people that are listening to this, that are interested, if you're interested in find people that are doing it and see if you can apprentice with them. And, And the way I teach, you know, in my courses is it's an apprentice style learning. And, you know, actually that's another beautiful, um, application of co-therapy because you've got the two therapists you can have one therapist who's a teacher and one therapist who's a student and you actually work on people together you know with medicines so you're actually doing it live and they're you know the teachers you know doing most of it in the beginning uh, but you're you're learning experientially and and most people i found actually learn much more deeply experientially than they do academically or, or just mentally um, so yeah, I would seek out people. Uh, I, w- I read a ton of books. I mean, that was another th- way that I would I would um, I would learn stuff. Yeah, and I would go and get sessions. Like, oh, I'd go and get acupuncture, and I'd go and I, you know, there was an Ayurvedic doctor, so I went and did a session with them, and and uh, you know, they would teach me stuff, and I would read about it. So it was, I would just kind of, you know, I, I call it. Um, following the golden threads, you know, it, it, there'd be like a herbalist come to town and I was like, Oh, I I read his book and he's awesome. And I, you know, he did a week long seven day course and talked, you know, would teach us like how to communicate with plants and um, you know, or or if you're really interested in ayahuasca, you can go and apprentice down in the jungle, you know, there's, so there's lots of different avenues and you can be creative about it. And, and, 
you know, speaking from someone, being a mentor is really good. Someone comes to me and like, Hey, I want to apprentice with you. It's like, sweet. That's awesome. Let's, let's do this. And yeah. And that's how things used to, you know, before this sort of higher education system came along, that's how things were done. It's, it's all, it's been done. Humans have been doing that for, for centuries. You know? Thanks for sharing that. Um, there's a lot of things that I love in there. Something that repeatedly comes up with a lot of our guests is the idea of like networking, finding people in your field that, you know, can help create connections for you. But I think the way that you did it actually takes it a little bit further and not just creating a network of people, but working with them um, and developing your skill in that way. So I think that's something really unique that you bring that we haven't found in some of our other uh, episodes yet. So I think our listeners will find that really useful. And I hope that they have the courage to reach out and go and ask, you know, can I sit in with you or can I apprentice with you? Like you said, it's not something that's really common, at least in our Western culture now. You know, I don't go to my professor and say, hey, can I help you with, you know, these interviews or something like that? Although um, we should really be more open to it. It's a really interesting and important way for learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found it fascinating too. And some people you resonate, some people you don't. And, you know, I remember taking a course on uh, exorcisms. Uh, There was a woman and happened to be in Nelson. I thought, well, that might be interesting. You know, there's seems like every culture around the world talks about demons, including Christianity and shamanism talks about these lower astral entities. And, you know, I call it psychic disturbance. And it's actually, that's another part of mental health. And, you know, and I went and learned, um, <laughs> it was a pretty wild course. You know, I don't use it that I don't use that style, uh, but it was fascinating. You know, it's fascinating. But one thing too, I think, because the uh, you know the sort of pathway of education is sort of presented as like this is sort of the only option or whatever. Um, you know, we we kind of miss out on a whole bunch of possibilities that. I mean, the reason I use the exorcism thing is like, if you're interested in something, it's probably out there and we have the internet now, so you can, you know, probably find it and, and, and try it out. And you might go, wow, this is fascinating. I want to learn more. And then you go and find, okay, well, who's the expert in this field or or read their book or whatever. Um, Or you might find like, okay, that was fascinating, but like, whoa, that's not what I'm, you know, it's not my thing. And I, I just shop around, you know, try lots of different things, especially in the healing arts. Um, it's such a vast field. The thing I, one thing I love about the healing arts is like, you know, I've been in it 25 years and I'm still learning stuff every day about it. You know, it's not one of those jobs that you sort of learn it and then you just repeat, you know, the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, it's a fascinating field. The other thing that I find missing in the education system is we, you know, I, there's no talk of emotional intelligence or relational intelligence or spiritual intelligence or, you know, so um, the cool thing is once you're out of high school, you know, then the the world is your oyster and you can actually go, you could go to India and study with a guru if that's your, you know, what you're feeling drawn to, but follow the golden threads is what, you know, if you're really, and it's what lights you up. It's what, you know, you really want to, if you can drop this idea of like, oh, is it going to make me money? Does it have a good retirement plan or whatever? Um, when you're, especially with psychedelics, you know, psychedelics are helpful for that because they can like really it, when that default mode networks turns off, it's all of a sudden, oh my God, there's an infinite number of possibilities that I didn't see before. Um, so you really want to drop this idea of like, is it going to like 
you know, work financially, if you can, you know, obviously you got to make money and you got to, but in the beginning, when you're just exploring, you know, investigate what lights you up and the money will come out because the more you love your job, the more passionate you are about it, the better you get at it. And then the money comes. I mean, I, I, one challenge that I had from not going the the traditional route was I was broke for the first 15 years. Like I was barely paying my rent and I was barely, I had three kids and I was barely paying the bills. And there were so many times when I was like, okay, I'm just going to go get a job at the restaurant or whatever, and, or go back tree planting again or whatever. And, um, and sometimes I would, you know, okay, I, I need some money. So I go tree planting for a couple of months. And because my practice wasn't quite at the place where it was making enough. Once I, once I started doing trauma resolution, my practice exploded and I, you know, never looked back, but the first 15 years when I was still dabbling in all these things, it, it wasn't solid enough to, to, uh, you know, but now, you know, I'm booked like three months in advance and the, you know, I, I, I got to turn people away all the time. Um, but it, you know, it's not necessarily an easy path because it doesn't line you up with like an agency that's going to give you a job, you know, so you, you got to be a little bit resilient, but I think if you follow the golden threads, it, it pays off, you know, you'll find your way, you know, that's the perfect piece of advice. I think it's so important. And I think adding to that too, um, in our culture, it's so ingrained unfortunately, especially for young kids to start thinking about like, what are you going to do with your life? Like our system, Mm -hmm. particularly the education system is not set up to allow us to have individual creative freedom to go out and try things and see if it works for us or, um, you know, dabble in a little bit of this or a little bit of that and try to figure out, you know, like you said, what makes us happy, what makes us passionate, what makes us excited. i went to go visit family for the holidays. And I think I was talking to my niece and she's not even in high school yet. And people are already asking her, what do you want to go to college for? You know? And I'm just like, one, what if she doesn't want to go to college? What if she wants to do something else? And I told her, don't worry about it now. Go explore, go do whatever you want to do. Go play sports, go play an instrument, whatever you want to do, go do it and figure out what makes you excited. What gets you excited about life essentially. Unfortunately, I think the culture and the system that is created within our culture doesn't always support that. So it can be a bit intimidating for people to, to pursue that. But I think those that are brave enough to do so, it pays off in the end. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, there's a lot of pressure on, um, <clears throat> you know, I have a son who's 18 right now and he just graduated in, in the, in the spring and, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure, like, oh, what are you going to do? What do you want to be? And I think that's where parents can actually be helpful or, or say a men's group or something where, um, you know, there's a bit of mentoring around, like asking this question, what lights you up? What are you passionate about? What do you love? You know, what are you excited about? And, you know, there can even be coming of age ceremonies where you take them, do a vision quest out in the forest with the sweat lodge or whatever, you know, there's ancient, every other culture has this, like a coming of age type of um, ceremony or, or maybe not every culture, but many cultures. Uh, And that's where, you know, you're really encouraged to, and again, psychedelics can actually be like, that was kind of my coming of age is when I 
dropped acid when I was 18. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, there's so many more possibilities than anyone ever told me. And nobody told me about a spiritual world and church definitely wasn't hitting the mark and my parents and the school, you know, and I was kind of angry, like, uh, the nobody told me about this and I've been on the planet for 18 years and and like like you're saying it like what what's offered is very limited and very tailored to put you into very specific jobs to well keep the matrix running um and most people don't even know that there's there's a million other possibilities outside of that so that's especially when people around 17 18 19 you know if they can have mentors that that can kind of help draw that out or they go and have a vision quest and they get a vision a little bit and one thing about that sort of life purpose too that I've realized is that often you're just kind of showing the next step you're not necessarily showing like uh the whole path like oh in 20 years you're still going to be doing this it's sort of like here's the next step. That's your life purpose. And then you do that one. And then, okay, what's the next one? And then that's your life purpose. And so it's not a fixed thing. Um, it can, it can change, but there is often like, uh, you know, you can apply psychedelics with an intention, you know, say I take mushrooms and my intention is like, what the hell is my purpose on in life here? What am I doing here? What's my direction? And you go out in the forest and, you know, if it's old growth forest, even better, because there's the energies heightened and, and you'll, you, you, you get these intuitive hits. Um, and it might be a five-year sort of trajectory, or it might be a year, or it might be just the next step, but um, you know, it, there's ways of, of, you know, kind of touching into a deeper part of yourself or deeper intelligence uh you know that's a brilliant use of psychedelics to help um show you because you're so much more open to these possibilities and you're not limiting yourself by like am i going to pay the bills and all of that yeah for sure what a great conversation from so far this is wonderful um i'm enjoying it yeah <laughs> thank you so you told us the journey of you know, testing out all these different alternative therapies and what that looked like for you at what point did it click for you to bring in psychedelics with alternative therapy yeah that was about it's about seven years ago now um six or seven years ago uh mainly just started using them uh with myself and I was married to a woman who was also a therapist and she's also a doctor and also into psychedelics. And so we started just experimenting with like, okay, well, what if we take a medicine and, and then do somatic therapy together, you know, and we would take turns, you know, holding space for each other. And, you know, it was like, oh my God, this is, this is, like I said, a match made in heaven. You know, it brings up the implicit imprints. It, you know, just the inner healer comes online, not always, but um, for many people, uh, the inner healer, which is one thing I love about the MAPS MDMA study is in their uh, handbook for therapists, they they talk about the inner healer. And, you know, it's all been like FDA approved now. So, you know, the, the inner healer is officially FDA approved. Um, so, you know, and so the medicines can open up your access to, to this inner healer and that, you know, it just, I need you to hold me. I want you to say this, can you be my dad for a second and and tell me this? And, you know, it really like knows what it needs. You know, there's an intelligence, a deeper intelligence 
that that knows what you need. And you, if you have like a safe container and the ideal conditions, it'll come out. So, you know, we started experimenting, going, oh my God, this is amazing. Inner healers online. And um, and it was around the time that the MAPS uh, study was starting. And, and so we were kind of inspired by, by the MAP study and then we were trying MDMA and, and, um, and then, you know, I started doing it with friends and family and cause it took a, I didn't want to just give, start giving it to clients. Um, like, I guess if you're a therapist listening to this, I really work with it for yourself, do a lot of self sessions with it. Or if you have a partner and you take turns or, or you're just doing it with your friends or your men's group or your family or, um, before you start giving it to clients, because it is like, you know, it's kind of a trendy these days to uh, everyone wants to be a psychedelic therapist. And like, it's not for the faint of heart. And I've tried to do it as carefully and ethically and everything as possible. And, and, um, you know, sometimes people, their trauma opens up and the session ends and it's still going and you got to stay there hours after you want to go home. (laughs) And the next day and, you know, and or people call you in the middle of the night, like, oh, I can't sleep. I'm messed up. And like, it, it's a really kind of hard job because you're working with people's very like delicate systems and, um, and psychedelics can be somewhat unpredictable. Uh, so it, it's not something that you want to just dive into, like, as far as sitting with people, you know. Uh, you want to ease, you, you know, go very carefully into sitting with people because it it's hazardous as the therapist, because the other thing people do, we call it projection or transference, where they start, uh, you know, you start working in their trauma and maybe they've been sexually abused, you know, by their father or whatever. Um, and then somehow they start projecting you as the perpetrator and they start sending emails to people that you that they think you're unethical or even if nothing's happened um you know all kinds of things can go sideways anyways i took a while before i started sitting with people and and then when i started sitting with people and i started realizing like wow this is way more um hazardous than i thought uh, especially when you're working with you know ptsd and complex ptsd and really 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 vulnerable people um, they can turn on you and and start, you know, as if they have this do- disorganized attachment, we call it, where where your attachment figure was also the 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 threat, the the perpetrator. And so you're you're like the person that's helping you is also seen as the person that's gonna hurt you. And you know, there's all kinds of ways it can it can go sideways and become a real challenge. Um <clears throat> so a lot of what I've been working on lately is uh, what I call aftercare and integration. What would be ideal is if somebody came to a center where you're doing psychedelic therapy and then they stay for a couple of days so that uh, if they do say have a big one and it's still going for days or you know, the medicines wear off, but the trauma can keep going. You've taken the lid off of some big trauma vortex and it can, you can go for days and you know, it's really hard for people if they, they're back in their little apartments by themselves, like vibrating and trauma and, 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 you know, their mind starts making up all these stories, you know, you gave me too much and now I'm, you fucked me up and now I'm a mess. Anyways, all that to be said, it also has this potential for like deep, deep healing and to, to, to get to stuff that you wouldn't, that would be 
one part of it is is the seven hour session. Um, you know, in a, in traditional therapy, you know, most people it's an hour, right? So by the time you say hello and goodbye, you're at fifty minutes, and and by the time you build a bit of trust and whatever, and often it feels like you're just touching on the 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 thing, and it's time to go. You know, so I always did two hour sessions even before I did psychedelic medicines, just just because at an hour it's like we're just getting into it. You know, we're really starting to get to some layers that are actually going to. You know, I always did two hour sessions, but um, with the psychedelic session, it's seven hours, right? So you can you know, layer by layer, by layer, by layer, by layer, you can get to some stuff that you would never get to in an hour and a half, because, you know, you're just touching on it, and then you come back, and you got to go through all the same stuff again, and you're just getting to it, you know, so part of the beauty of psychedelics is that longer um, time that you're together. And the more safety that people have, the deeper they can go. So if, if you know, you you are good at developing safety. And, and I always work with people a few sessions, at least before we do a medicine session, um, just so that there's, they feel safe when you do the medicine session. And, but, you know, so there's this huge potential. So I, for about six years, I've been uh, working with medicines. And then about three years ago, I started teaching people to combine the trauma resolution with medicines. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That was great. All right. I have one final question before we shift over into some concluding questions. And that would be if you could give any piece of advice to individuals that are looking to pursue um, a career similar to yours or following alternative forms of therapy and integrating psychedelics into them, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I would start doing your own work uh, because that can also be a bit of a a guide um, as you start, you, you know, uh, going for sessions, going for therapy, seeking out somatic therapists, seeking out psychedelic therapists, um, and try different ones, you know, and it's really important to uh, kind of know someone's reputation before you just die, because like we were saying, it's kind of a wild west out there where there's people that have, you know, oh, I could sit for you. I've done a few acid trips or whatever. And, you know, and then you go into a panic attack and they have no idea how to regulate you. And, you know, then you end up with ambulances and, you know, the whole scene is is bad. So you want to you want to connect with somebody who who's been doing it a while, who has a good reputation, you know, ask around and and places like Nectara or, or your network are you know probably good places to to look and say hey do you guys know anyone in the san francisco area that's doing medicine work and you know what do you think of these people or i'm thinking of doing it with this guy has anyone heard of him you know um you know so do your homework and and do your own work and as you do your own work you'll um start to find which things work and which things don't and you know if you wanted to uh, follow a path like me, what I would recommend Mariah Moser's course is probably the, the ultimate starting point. And then once you've done that, you could take my course. Um, if you want to start adding, uh, medicines into your work, um, you know, I would sit with ayahuasca circles. Yeah. And, and I would just talk to people, other people too, you know, that are psychedelic therapists, either above ground or underground or whatever, and just ask them what their path was like. And, you know, my wife and I had this idea that, wow, it would be really good to use somatic therapy to help integrate ayahuasca circles, you know, because 
the big buzz that still is is integration right people go you get your socks blown off on saturday and then you got to be back at work on monday and some like most circles i went to in the early days it was you show up they hand you the medicine you drink it and, and i'm like well what do i expect you know there were there was no pre talk about what to do if you get in a tight situation or you know it was just you know good luck and and then it ends and everyone went home right so we thought it'd be much better to have like a whole retreat where you come there's a whole preparation phase there's the medicine phase and then there's a whole integration phase um so we were you know i, I call it like shaman shopping we between the two of us my wife and i we sat with about uh eight or nine different shamans until we or ayahuascaros until we found them we were like okay she's the one and then we you know if we did a circle together where you pour the medicine and we um help integrate you know can we touch people in the ceremony and all and you know she was okay with that so it just i would just try it out and and find what's the best fit for you i would recommend you know looking for courses that are more experiential uh, you know, obviously you can get a foundational stuff, like on, a lot of stuff's online these days, but, um, you know, look for and and talk to people and, and find the people that you find are the most effective. Like, oh, I've tried three different ayahuasca, but that one I really, you know, got somewhere. And you're looking for how is your life changing? You know, it's um, lots of times people can go and they have a great, you know, amazing trippy experience, uh, but, you know, then they still repeat the same shitty patterns in their life over and over again so so kind of the litmus test is is this transformative am i behaving differently do i have more choices am i still repeating the same patterns and yeah you know find your way i think that's all very sound advice so thanks for sharing that i think it's important i think i have something to take out of that too <laughs> oh good <laughs> So at the conclusion of our episodes, we like to ask some questions about where you see the future of the psychedelic field going. So thinking about the next five to 10 years, where do you want to see the psychedelic field develop into? Yeah, I think uh, kind of like I was mentioning, I think having psychedelic centers where people can go and stay for, you know, you could have different packages, you know, they come for like five days or they come for two weeks or maybe they do three medicine things over two weeks or something like that because you know everyone has a different idea about what integration is you know and and so I've been looking at that very closely for for years and trying to figure out what is the best integration and what does that even mean and like what is it and some people you know they do a huge thing and they go home and they're fine you know and other people they're a mess for a week you know so um they need a lot more integration. Psychedelics tend to be disintegrating. You know, you can feel like you're disintegrating. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's uh, the practices down in like Peru, you know, my friend, oh, we did 10 ceremonies in 13 days or whatever. And they came back and they were a mess. They were completely disintegrated because they just kept taking more medicine and more medicine and more medicine. So, I think the future of, of medicine work, you know, partly in, in the South, they don't have all this developmental trauma, right? Because the baby's like held on the, you know, past a grandma or the neighbor, you know, and they don't have strollers and car seats and cribs. And, you know, so just like other primates, they, they get all this contact. So 
you know, they get all these messed up North Americans coming down. So because they have centers now, they have ayahuasca centers down there. But I think what they need to add is to have more of a um, integration phase between ceremonies. And uh, the best form of integration that I found is actually community. The, the best integration I ever had was we did a, we did a big medicine night and then we had an integration day. And then in that evening we had a fire and we sat around and, um, you know, people played guitars and kind of got everybody singing and, uh, people, we sort of took turns telling stories and, and people would share a medicine song and it, everybody was integrated. It was, it was amazing. So the, the, and that's what happens down in the jungle. They do ayahuasca and then they go back into the community and there's daily life going on and there's kids running around and it transitions us back into like life. And the problem in North America is we're so isolated from each other that we, we go from the ceremony to usually aloneness or maybe one other person. And so we don't get this sort of community um, feel that kind of eases us back into life. So I would add that into you know if you had a center you had you have sort of a, i would call it a therapeutic community where there's and it would also be a, a place to train therapists so you have like experienced therapists and you have um students uh working there together um, but the focus isn't just on the psychedelics the focus is on you know what happens before the you know during and then after and there's there's much more time that's just singing and dancing and you know you have dance we have we have dance parties that's a really good form of integration play is a really good form of integration um so just uh you know because psychedelics can be so serious you know and we're going into and we're and that's what we're doing shadow work you know and that and a lot of people there's a misunderstanding a huge misunderstanding people like oh, oh medicine work and most people they just want to feel better right and usually when you do psychedelics you feel worse <clears throat> for a while and then you think oh something went wrong right and usually it's something went right you know if you feel worse <laughs> you feel better in the long run but you don't necessarily feel good right away you know and and uh and so having having a place where you can actually go and and a lot of the psychedelic work um, especially the plant medicines most people are doing this work as a form of self-discovery or self-healing or you know we're trying to be better people uh, but I think there's a broader application or a broader teaching that's coming through the the plant medicines that actually starts to inform your lifestyle so it's not just about self-improvement well that's part of it but I think there's a bigger picture that we could be looking at there. How does this self-improvement contribute to a healthier lifestyle? You know, because we've become so disconnected from nature and from each other. And part of the message of these plants is human beings do much better when we're more connected with each other and when we're more connected with nature. And, you know, with all the stuff that's happening in the world right now, this is actually a, a great time to create uh, what we call the new earth, you know, and the new earth can be informed by these uh, psychedelic medicine centers because it starts to get you back in touch with what matters and what's important. And because we've been sold this um, lie that if you're successful and if you have lots of money and you have, you know, 2.5 kids and a hot wife, you're going to be happy. Right. 
but people get all those things and then they have a midlife crisis because it, it wasn't true. Those things don't make you happy. They, they might make life a bit easier or whatever, but um, what makes us happy is connection with each other, healthy relationships, you know? Um, so the focus could start to be on what's important. And I think these plant medicines can really inform the direction of that. It's so exciting to hear you say that, to envision this future of, of psychedelics, especially like my dissertation research looks at people who have transformative psychedelic experiences at music events. And so mm-hmm. part of it is breaking down the barrier of what that clinical setting looks like in, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And part of the other goal is to find different ways of like you were talking about these different forms of integration of rethinking how to use psychedelics in healing and in treatment and what does transformative mean for us. And, and so it's really cool to hear your vision of that and know that like my project is in some way aiming at kind of contributing to that vision. It's really exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That's really awesome. Cool. What a great uh, topic to, expl- I'd love to uh, read it when you're done. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Cause that would be informative too. Cause some of my work's been informed by, having a great time at a festival and the feeling of connection and play and fun and dance and celebration, you know, we've sort of lost, you know, if you do medicine work in indigenous cultures, there's kids running around and, and there's people playing music and, you know, the music scene is actually sort of the closest thing we've had to like a community type um, inclusive experience. And it, it can be, it's super transformative. It's like another reminder for me that I'm headed in the right direction. The the project I picked is going to do something and it's going to keep yeah. something. So that makes me feel really great. Awesome. <laughs> okay. I think maybe one of the most important questions that our listeners might be interested in is if they want to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, okay. You could email me at Sasha at SashaCuff.com. So it's just my name and my last name. Email is the best for me. And and if you're really interested in this work, uh, probably the best first step would be to take the masterclass. And, um, you know, if you really resonate with that, uh, you know, it's a really good foundation of the theory uh, of everything I've been talking about. And then, you know, if that feels like, you know, you feel lit up by by that work, um, you know, you could always come and take a course where we actually do the experiential and, and we actually, during the course, we actually work with medicines with people so that people can, you know, have an experience of what it's like to be on a medicine or when the client's on a medicine and you're doing co-therapy and we actually do it for real. So there is kind of a path and then you can apprentice and, and we can do co-therapy with your clients and, you know, you can learn, I can come and and I have other apprentices that are, you know, kind of getting towards teacher level that, you know, you could work with and all of that. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll be sure to include your email in the show notes. That way everyone has easy access to it. And is there anything else that you'd like to say or offer to our audience before we sign off? Yeah. You know, there's sort of the American dream of this stuff's going to make you happy, but actually what really makes you happy is finding your, your heart and, uh, this work, especially with psychedelics and the connection with nature, um, you know, it can help you find your heart. And then once you find that, that can guide you. You know, there's there's a wisdom. They call it prajna um, in Zen, uh, heart wisdom. 
so there's a wisdom in your heart that's it's not necessarily rational uh but like if you keep that you know i had that intention it took you know it took me about 15 years to really get into my heart uh, and a lot of work and a lot of um, exploration but so 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 valuable because that's your you know the center that's going to lead you in the right direction and if you hold that intention and and that prayer um the means will come awesome thank you for sharing that sasha and thank you for sharing everything that you offered us today. It's been a beautiful and very heart opening conversation. And so I know I appreciate it. I appreciate your knowledge and your experience. And I know that our listeners do too. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to connect and to get to talk about this stuff because it, it lights me up and I love it. And I hope it can really help the world. And I'm really glad that you're helping the world in this way by getting it out there. And yeah, blessings to you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this insightful and wonderful conversation. I want to direct your attention to the show notes where you can find a special link to Sasha's masterclass on the physiology of trauma. By clicking on this link and signing up for this course, you'll be supporting Nectara and Sasha. Additionally, a portion of the costs go to supporting Psychedelic Grad so we can keep providing resources and knowledge to our growing community. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, be sure to jump on over to the Psychedelic Grad community page, and you can find the link in the notes below. Also, if you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad weekly newsletter with the link in the description. And finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so we know we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grads Curious to Serious podcast. Mm-hmm.